This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. As the federal government moves all too slowly to address the climate crisis, cities are stepping up. There's hundreds of cities around America that have said, look, we want to be 100% renewable or 80% renewable or 50% by the year 2030. These local programs aren't just innovating on energy and sustainability, they're transforming lives. This one person who became a foreman, he was able to have a secure income, get married, buy his own house, put his daughter through college. And this was really transformative for him. These efforts are also listening to people often not heard. It's not just the the person who works at a consulting firm with with a fancy briefcase, but it's also the grandmother who sits in in the room looking out the window uh, and can tell you everything you need to know about the speed in the neighborhood. Successful strategies for rebuilding cities. Up next on Climate One. 83% of people in the United States live in urban areas. And these days, that's where important climate progress is happening. Building codes and regional transit policies may not be sexy, but they can address historic injustices and provide cleaner air and better quality of life in a tangible way. Tamika Butler is a national expert on the built environment, diversity and inclusion, and change management. She is currently pursuing a Ph.D. in urban planning at the University of California, Los Angeles. Before moving to L.A., Tamika lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and grew up in Nebraska. I asked how her experience informs the way she views what cities can and should be. You know, when I think about my different experiences growing up in Omaha, going to law school at Stanford and living in the Bay for about seven years and then moving down to L.A., where I've been since 2012, it's really different. And beyond that, I was a military kid. So, you know, from second grade until right before high school, I was in Okinawa, Japan, which is also a totally uh, different environment. I think it's helped me as as an advocate, as a consultant, as a student. I think it's helped me as a person. Uh, one, just one of my core identities as a Midwesterner. Um, and, and knowing that everything is not a big city. And so when when I look at different solutions to climate, uh, to transportation, I'm really a huge proponent of there's no one size fits all, right? Like you you have to really um, take a particular place for what it is. You have to be willing to see that even without everything being perfect, there are probably some strengths there. There are probably some things that work. In 2020, we were simultaneously hit with COVID, watershed moments in racial justice and increasing climate disasters. At that time, you wondered if this might be an opportunity to build something new from the ground up. What is that something new? Unfortunately, I think so much that happens in planning and and climate spaces is that we get stuck a little bit and this is how we've always done it, right? But we've all heard that saying, doing the same thing you've always done and expecting different results could be a definition of insanity. And in the essay from the ground up, you wondered, quote, what if we build something up just to fortify the foundation of white supremacy that was already there, end quote? How do you avoid doing that? I think we have to be conscious of it. Something else I said in the essay is we have to be willing to talk about it, right? I I always tell people, if you can't say racism, if you can't um, say white supremacy, if you can't say anti-Black, then I don't know if I can trust you because how can we fix something if we can't talk about it, right? For me, if we just say, I, I think what happened in 2020 is, is we were all stuck inside. Um, and when I say all, again, we have to think about who had the privilege to be stuck inside and who never stopped being that frontline worker. But I think as more people were, were stuck inside and they couldn't turn away um, from racism, they couldn't turn away from the climate disasters, they couldn't turn away from these things, more people felt engaged and energized to say, I want to do something. And and there there's there's a gap there between wanting to do something and actually doing it. And sometimes just wanting to do something and articulating that you want to do something, but then rolling up your sleeves to, again, do it the way you've always done it, 
Well, you might feel like you're building something new because you have a new energy. You have a new interest and, and goal. And, and I believe that, that that is genuine for many people. But because you're not willing to conceptualize it in a different way, you think you're building something new when in fact you're just giving lip service. I think the, the phrase I use in the essay is you're creating this facade that things are going to be different. But in fact, um, you know, we can't we can't just build without acknowledging and speaking about the ills of the past and what was there in the past, because if we can't speak about it, we can't fix it. I have learned a lot about my own privilege, uh, white privilege, and certainly about systemic racism in this country and how it is everywhere and everything since that spring of reckoning in 2020. And yet I've, so I think I've opened up and learned some things, but I read your Twitter feed and I think, uh, and I think, oh no, I haven't done nearly <laughs> enough. I haven't changed. You know, maybe I'm just making myself feel good. So how do you, do you see progress and change in the, in the situations you're in, in urban planning, you know, our cities being changed in, in any new way, or is it just still at that talk level? I think that there is change. I'm I'm an optimistic person. And so, you know, I have to believe in some change. If if I didn't believe in change, then I would feel like all the work I was doing, you know, I was just a hamster running on a wheel. So I, I do think there has been some change. I do think, um, you know, there are folks like you, Greg, who are like, wow, I've really looked internal and I've started asking myself questions I, I didn't ask before. I stopped turning away, right? And, and, and we are seeing cities do more with reaching out to people, doing different forms of engagement, being open um, to changing who we conceptualize when we think of expert, realizing um, that, you know, it's not just um, the, the person who works at a consulting firm with, with a fancy briefcase, but it's also uh, the grandmother who sits in, in the room looking out the window uh, and can tell you everything you need to know about the speed in the neighborhood, what, what some of the, the trouble spots are, right? So I think there has been a, uh, there have been changes and we are, I think, headed in the right direction. I think what's tough is someone who, you know, does live in this country is, is someone who's black and queer, that we have a tragedy in Buffalo simply because people are trying to live their lives and they happen to be black. It was followed by a tragedy in Orange County where people were targeted um, for being Taiwanese. And I, I think that's something, you know, we, we've seen a lot of during these last few years, the, the rise and, and hate. And so I don't want I don't want to let those instances steal my joy or my hope or or hide the fact that I think there are a lot of people who have have had an experience of feeling like things have to be different and I have to be a part of that change. But I would also be naive to not acknowledge that there's still a lot of work to do and it's still really difficult to be black in this country and in the planning space. You were for a time the executive director of the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. Cycling is a, a sport and activity that is often has a certain image. Uh, I'm a cyclist, and there's sort of that skinny, skinny white male with you know scrawny arms and big legs, and there's sort of, you know uh, there's it, there's inclusion in bicycling. Like a lot of things, has been a real challenge. Other than the bike path along the Venice and Santa Monica <laughs> beaches, most people don't think about bikes in LA and, and happily coexisting. When you can't build a bike friendly city from the ground up, what do you do? How do you get bikes into a car centric culture like Los Angeles? Right. You know, and I think this is something we, we have to think about a lot with a lot of our environmental and transportation interventions. And in an ideal world, it would be great if we had a blank slate and we could just build things from the ground up. But the reality is, we, we have the world we have and in some places we have the cities and the infrastructure we have. And so we are looking at more of a retrofitting process. I always say in those spaces, there, there are some new projects. So, you know, when in the city of Oakland, the, the Oakland Department of Transportation, um, led by Ryan Russo, right? He did a project around potholes and he was filling potholes, right? He wasn't building something new. He was, he was focusing on something existing, but he prioritized low-income communities of color. It was it was equity-led pothole filling. It was saying, 
who are what are the communities that haven't gotten the investment for a long time? And so again, I think even when we're building upon existing structures, how do we center equity? How do we think about who's historically gotten the least? Can they get the most? Can they get it first? And so a lot of these decisions, whether it's a climate investment, a transportation investment, a housing investment, whatever it is, it comes to to priorities. How do we prioritize? Who do we center in this work? And even if we're building up how can we still do it in a way that's different? We usually just repave this road, but can we repave it and include a bike lane, right? Things like that. We are seeing these instances where people are building upon existing structures. But again, I sound like a broken record, just doing it differently than they've done it before. I enjoy cycling and I've used public bike shares in Vancouver, New York, Washington. I use the one in San Francisco every week. I see stations in neighborhoods across this racially compartmentalized city and black neighborhoods, the Chinese neighborhoods, the Latinx community. To my eyes, the bikes are reasonably distributed and inclusive. You see something very different when you look at the bike shares. Why? Yeah, you know, one of my friends always says um, that, that when we look at bike share and we look at some of the membership data our uses data uh, of people who use bikes, it's not always as diverse or reflective of the diversity of the cities that these programs are in. And some people say, well, that's because black and brown people don't ride bikes. And this friend of mine says, well, actually, we invented bike share, right? We're the ones who like lived in these communities and said, hey, homie, can I borrow your bike for a second? I'll bring it right back. And everybody's <laughs> using the same bike in the neighborhood. Um, and beyond that, we do ride bikes. Sometimes we're invisible riders. If you go to any restaurant or any business with the third shift and you go look in the back, there are bikes locked up there. And so it's not a matter of, of not riding bikes. I think part of it is sometimes cities start new initiatives or do new things. And, and there's this kind of build it and they will come philosophy. But if people don't know about it, then especially low-income folks, folks of color who for so long have been told and messaged that things aren't for them, they're they're just gonna make an assumption. So there's examples in in New York when, you know, Bike Share worked with affordable housing developers and and put um put some stations outside of low-income housing and people were like, I'm not getting in trouble for touching that. Um here in LA mm -hmm. when we mm -hmm. first rolled out Bike Share and we did it in downtown LA, there's a part of downtown LA, um, the garment district with a lot of um predominantly Spanish speaking, you know, hardworking blue collar folks. And when the bike coalition and the group we were working with, People for Mobility Justice, went out and did outreach in Spanish, we just kept hearing they just showed up one day. We don't know what they're for. They must not be for us. No one talked to us about it. And so I think oftentimes when we make transportation planning decisions and we assume that people like me and you who just love this stuff, we're going to be like, what's that? Let me look it up. Let me Google it. Let me see. Oh, I can get a membership. But there are a lot of people for whom, you know, they don't want to touch something that is not for them because they know what happens to them when they do something they shouldn't do, when they go somewhere they shouldn't do, and when other people are making those rules for them about what they should and shouldn't do. And so I think part of it is really, really working with people from the beginning, not after it's done, but from the beginning and building and building that, that goodwill and that buy-in. You were trained as a civil rights lawyer before taking the job at the Los Angeles Bike Coalition, and you worried that it wouldn't fit your mission because as bike lanes are often the first sign of gentrification, what changed your mind? I think what that actually means is often black and brown and, and low-income communities, they have lacked investment for a long time. And so all of a sudden, they come outside one day and there's a bike lane. And they're like, wait a minute, we've been riding bikes, right? But this was never an issue. <laughs> like, we've always been riding bikes, but no one ever cared enough about our safety or our, you know, our facilities and infrastructure to build it. So who is this for, right? Um, we, you know, we've always had transit, but it never comes on time. We don't have adequate shade shelters. Um, we don't have street lights that work, but all of a sudden, some white folks are moving in <laughs> and things are getting spruced up. And now... This this, you know, transit line that used to be predominantly of color is now 
there's more white folks here and they're determining what feels safe and unsafe to them. And those of us who have been using this transit for a long time are now being policed in a different way because someone else has has decided that we're no longer safe. And so I think it's not the bike lane in and of itself, but it's people saying, why have we been in this community for a long time? And some of these investments, whether it's a grocery store, a bike lane, fixing the streetlights, weren't there, but now they're there and we're seeing demographics change. But, you know, transportation and access to transportation is such a critical civil rights issue. It's always been part of the civil rights struggle since someone on the bus said, nah, not today. I'm not getting up. New York City has a plan called NYC 25 by 25, which proposes converting 25% of New York City's street space into pedestrian areas, bike lanes, green space, and bus lanes by 2025. How does that proposal strike you? It it makes me really excited. Um, after I left the Bike Coalition, the next organization I went to uh, was a parks organization, the LA Neighborhood Land Trust, where we built parks and gardens in low-income communities. And the reality is we have a lot of open lots and open spaces in, in our urban landscape. But beyond that, in so many ways, streets are one of our biggest resources that we have left um, for open space. And so being able to reimagine that space is fantastic. But as I always say, it's not necessarily about the idea. I think most people who get into city planning and transportation, our environmental work, I think we're good people. We want to help people. So it's never the intent of what we're doing. It's all in the details. It's how do we make it happen and who do we talk to? Are we planning with people or are we planning for people? And I think too often we like to say, well, we're the experts. We'll come up with the perfect plan. But in reality, part of equity is allowing people to self-determine what works best for them. And so we have to start figuring out ways to plan with people as we work towards these lofty goals. Well, thank you so much, Tamika Butler, for sharing your insights on what's possible and uh, from the ground up. Thanks for coming on Climate One. Thanks for having me, Greg. I really appreciate it. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the different ways cities are addressing the climate crisis. Coming up, the city of Ithaca in upstate New York is racing to decarbonize its buildings by 2030. One of the things I really love about the Ithaca Project, it's a mayor taking responsibility for their own outcomes. It's not, hey, I'm the mayor or the governor and it's 2020 and I'm going to pass some law that by 2050 we have to achieve XYZ climate objectives. I mean, who cares, right? In Ithaca, we have a project that has a timeline, seven and a half years to get everything done. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. In 2021, the city of Ithaca, New York, voted to electrify and decarbonize its buildings by 2030. It became the first city in the country to apply such regulation to existing buildings, not just new ones. The city says this program will cut CO2 emissions by 40%. The process will include installing solar panels and replacing gas stovetops and other fossil fuel appliances with electric ones. In order to achieve this aggressive goal, Ithaca has partnered with Block Power, a climate tech startup based in Brooklyn. I asked Donnell Baird, founder of Block Power, what has happened since the plan was announced last November. A lot has happened that's been really exciting. First of all, we've gotten emails um, from as far away as Australia, Europe, with other cities around the world who want to follow Ithaca's lead. And they want to know, how did Ithaca pull this off? How did they defeat the real estate industry in their town? How did they update the code? What were the particulars of how Ithaca figured out the engineering, finance, project management, and really procurement processes, right? I mean, there's hundreds of cities around America that similar to Ithaca have said, look, we want to be 100% renewable or 80% renewable or 50% by the year 2030. And they've passed those laws, but they haven't really figured out how to implement those laws and Ithaca has. And so 
there's lots and lots of cities from around the country and around the world who've been reaching out um, to the mayor's office and the sustainability uh, chief in Ithaca, Luis Aguar Torres, who's a genius. And he's been giving them lots of advice. Um, and so part of what we've been doing is evangelizing uh, the story of how Luis and Mayor Savante Myrick were able to pull this off. Right. So they haven't pulled it off yet. It's one thing to have an announcement. And as you know better than I, there's like uh, every building, you know, there's lots of variation in buildings and the kind of equipment and floor plan when they were built. Ithaca has a lot of old buildings. There's two phases, I understand. Phase one is a thousand residential and 600 non-residential units. So how's it going to happen? There's lots of different boilers and water heaters and uh, heating systems in these old buildings. They're expensive. Everyone's a little different, which sounds expensive. So how's it going to happen? So we signed our contract to launch the program a few weeks ago, and we have begun some of the implementation. We have a list of um, a bunch of buildings that are ready to decarbonize in Ithaca right now. There are some community centers. There are a bunch of single family homes, one or two people on the city council are, you know, eating their own dog food, but they're going <laughs> to comply with their own law first, which I think is appropriate. And, and more broadly, we've done a couple uh, city scale engineering assessments. We built a drone based map of um, uh, heating loss and thermal loads across several thousand buildings in Ithaca. So one, one cold wintry day when it was like way below freezing, we flew a drone across the city to map the rate at which buildings were losing heat and we outfitted the drone with thermal imagery. And so we could get a sense of which buildings were particularly energy inefficient based on uh, how they were performing on a super cold day. So we did that. We've also built a map, a digital map or digital twin of all of the buildings in the city of Ithaca so that we can run simulations on what kind of equipment uh, makes sense per building um, based on the building's age, size, use case, permitting histories. We now have uh, a database and a map of all the buildings in Ithaca that allow us to uh, make predictive engineering recommendations as to what kind of sustainability retrofits will make sense on a building by building basis. And that fundamentally is when you get into the implementation of how we're going to implement this Ithaca project, it's the use of statistics and predictive modeling and thermodynamic building science combined with project finance underwriting that's going to allow us to finance a portfolio of buildings across Ithaca. Internally, we want to get this done in a few years. Um, we know that we have seven and a half years to do all 6,000 buildings, um, but we'd like to get it done sooner than that. And uh, Ithaca, for people who don't know, it's about 30,000 people. Um, we Lots of goals being announced in, cor in corporate America and, and sometimes in government. Uh, what happens if Ithaca fails to meet these goals? Will the mayor still be around? Who's accountable? Because uh, so many times we see climate goals announced by people who who won't really be around in office when the, the you know the, that deadline comes to pass. Well, that's one of the things I really love about the Ithaca project. It's a mayor taking responsibility for their own outcomes. It's not, hey, I'm the mayor or the governor, and it's 2020, and I'm going to pass some law that by 2050 we have to achieve X, Y, Z climate objectives. I mean, who cares, right? In Ithaca, we have a project that has a timeline, seven and a half years to get everything done, we have a three to four year timeline by contract by which we're supposed to deliver a set of outcomes, certainly the first thousand buildings, if not more. And if we don't deliver, you know, the mayor's up for reelection and voters can punish her um, for not for not delivering on that goal. And so I love that um, Ithaca and the mayors of other several cities around America are taking direct hands on 100 percent grown up responsibility for implementing decarbonization in their city. When uh, solar panels and electric vehicles first came out, the basically there was a choice was to buy. Financing was was limited, not available. Then over time that matured and now people can uh, reduce the upfront cost of rooftop solar with through various financing options. Sounds like you're trying to do something similar to reduce the upfront cost of heat pumps and other equipment for buildings. So explain how that's working in this case with you know multi-tenant buildings, for example. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, we've worked with Goldman Sachs for several years to invent a new financial product that um, does for heat pumps and building decarbonization technologies, 
the same thing that mortgages do for homes or that solar finance is done for solar panels, which is amortize and stretch out the costs of these assets over time. You know, most Americans don't have $100,000 lying around to buy a new house, um, all cash or $25,000 laying around to pay for solar panels or heat pumps. Um, and so you take out a loan, you, you, you engage with financial markets and use a financial product to help you um, acquire that asset and repay a lender over time. And so that's what we've done uh, in this case for heat pumps, whether it's single family homes, apartment buildings, churches, synagogues, mosques, schools, um, whatever kind of building you have, we've developed a new financial product that allows us to um, lower the upfront cost to zero so that all Americans can have access to affordable electric buildings. In Ithaca, your project is going to focus on buildings located in low-income and historically marginalized communities. So how's that going to work if they are going into low-income areas with kind of expensive kind of single-use, um, you know, custom projects? How's that going to work financially? Uh, we're going to finance the low-income buildings the same way we've financed middle-class buildings and upper-middle-class buildings. We're, we're going to underwrite the energy savings, do a pro forma financial analysis of every building, and um, organize projects that are affordable for those low-income building owners. Our business at Block Power is um, figuring out how to introduce clean energy to all Americans and making it accessible for all Americans. We spent a lot of time figuring out how to do that. And um, that's exactly what we intend to do. So we're excited um, that 20% of Ithaca is low income. We are going to, we're confident that we're gonna be able to partner with those low income uh, building owners in the same way that we partner with more affluent building owners. And so looking forward to demonstrating all of that. In March, the Biden administration announced new plans to spend about $3 billion to upgrade thousands of homes in low-income areas. That was not one of the more successful parts of the Obama stimulus plan uh, back in 2009. How do you think that's going to play out? Will it be successful? And what will it learn from last time? Yeah, I think there's two, I think there's two things that have really changed. One is the Obama administration made a mistake. And I, you know, I know some of the people who made this decision, and God bless them. I don't know if it was an, an, an avoidable, mis well, some of us were telling them not to do it at the time. Not, not me, but some of the people I worked with were adamant that they were screwing up, which was they took the $6.6 .6 billion of low-income weatherization money and distributed it to all these local nonprofits who didn't necessarily have CFOs, weren't used to having 10 times the budget um, that they normally had. They were ordered to hire a bunch of workers quickly. They had to figure out how to train them, how to supervise them. Um, how to buy more material. And there wasn't necessarily the back office support to help those nonprofits scale up. So that was that was one uh, challenge. The second is, you know, in, in 2009, most people didn't have iPhones. Most people didn't have mobile computing, cloud computing. There was no Alexa. The computational capacity that the average American has at their fingertips, in their home, in their, in their speaker, um, all of that can be applied to building science. And that is what the philanthropic grant from the Bezos Earth Fund allows us to do. It is taking cutting edge computational technologies from Amazon Web Services and um, Apple has, you know, there's a LIDAR in the iPhone where you can walk around the building and do a LIDAR map of, of your entire building. And so it's just going to dramatically change the way that we can do analysis and design and installation of green buildings technologies. And if the Biden-Harris administration is smart, which I think they are, they're going to use all of these technologies to ensure that their program builds upon lessons learned from the Obama era and runs a really successful low-income green buildings program at scale that is successful and can produce case studies to allow uh, lots and lots of other low-income buildings across America and across the world uh, to go green. And that's exactly, that's exactly what we're all hoping is going to happen. You talked about growing up in Brooklyn and um, heating your home apartment by opening the stove. So I'd like to know, you know how personal this is for you, your, how your lived experience informs this. And also, you know, the Brooklyn experience, you've done some work in Brooklyn that is not prospective like Ithaca. You know, what have you taken away in terms of the building decarbonization from Brooklyn? Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. I mean, we had some time when we were in Switzerland to talk with one of our biggest partners in Brooklyn, Jeff Dunstan, 
um, and and to talk with Luis, who who joined us in Davos, and um, and as we were like plotting and strategizing of how to take the message of Ithaca to the world, part of it is that you can use digital modeling and the digitization of green buildings design um, into software. Um, that is what we tested out in Brooklyn back in 2016 and 2017, and it worked. And that is what we are expanding, you know, to city scale in Ithaca. And it's, it's working. We expect it to work. And so um, we want to continue to build on those lessons of how do you combine insights about the physical world um, and, you know, the physicality of buildings, but how do you use uh, software and cloud computing and machine learning um, to, to increase the speed and decrease the, the cost at which you can re reach insights about how to green individual buildings and how to green a whole city full of buildings. I think the other part of it for me is like, I'm a dad. Um, I have a six-year-old and a two-month-old. Um, and um, mm -hmm. as I read the Stanford data on, um, on how awful um, gas ovens are for families, that gas ovens release nitrogen dioxide, they release carbon monoxide, they release methane, even when you're not cooking with gas ovens, like methane is being released into your home, like your kids are breathing it in. Yeah, there's um, that, the, the pilot light is still on. Yeah, the pilot light is still on. The methane is still burning, burning, and it's still leaking into your home, right? Not just your kitchen, but your entire house. So your kids and grandkids are breathing that in, right? And so, like any parent is going to be alarmed about that. It lands particularly hard with me because I grew up in a household where we didn't have heat and used our oven, uh, our gas oven, to provide heat, and we would open up the windows to release the the carbon monoxide and the fumes. And so, you know we just have this intimate relationship with um, our gas furnace and all the chemicals it produced from a very early age. And like, I don't want that for my kids and I don't want that for anybody else's kids. So I'm glad that the Stanford studies are coming out. I, I assume that other parents will read them and, and recoil in horror just as I am um, and, and rapidly move to switch out um, all of the gas appliances in your home from a health perspective from a financial perspective, because you're going to save money. And oh, by the way, this happens to be like the single greatest thing you can thing you can do as a family for the planet, right? And so we just want to get that message out to as many people as we can. And that's why we're so excited to talk with you today. Yeah, and anyone, a lot of people have indoor air uh, filter, indoor air quality monitors these days since the uh, fires in the American West. And uh, those were purchased for for wildfire uh, purposes, but if people uh, use them and turn on their gas stove, they'll also see a spike in those numbers. Donnell Baird is CEO and founder of Block Power. Thanks, Donnell, for coming on Climate One again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Throughout the country, people of color have long been relegated to living in sacrifice zones. Areas near factories, landfills, and other industrial facilities absorb high levels of contamination to make products that benefit people somewhere else. Consumers who never see or breathe the pollution associated with their consumption and lifestyles. But now in one black neighborhood in Houston, a former landfill is taking on new life that supports and connects nearby residents. Climate One correspondent Aubrey Calloway reports. On any given day, it, it depending on which way the wind was blowing. The stench off that dump was horrible. I, I can't even describe it. This is Curtis Dockery Jr. He's a lifelong resident of Sunnyside, a small, majority black community in southeast Houston, Texas. Sunnyside is only a 15-minute drive from downtown Houston, but it has retained its distinctly urban or rural and suburban character. I've seen Sunnyside go from the country to semi-suburbs. Sunnyside was uh, dirt roads. And around 1960, they put pavement down, but you got cows and horses and chickens still in Sunnyside. As the oldest black neighborhood in Southern Houston, Sunnyside has suffered from decades of environmental racism. The main culprit, the Sunnyside landfill. Residents just call it the dump. I mean, it was horrible because you got garbage, you got manure from animals, and you can imagine the smell that would go out through the community. I don't know how much it had to do with sickness in Sunnyside, but I do know that a lot of people in Sunnyside died from cancer. A lot of people. After a young boy drowned inside the dump in 1967, 
civil rights organizers began calling for its closure. The city finally closed the dump and nearby incinerator in the 1970s. But even though the dump was capped, the site was never truly rehabilitated. Decades later, it seems like that might finally change. And it is my great pleasure to report that we have received the approval from the Texas Commission for Environmental Quality, TCEQ, to proceed with the Sunnyside Solar Farm Project. This past April, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner announced that the Sunnyside landfill would be converted into the largest urban solar farm in the United States. In total, 52 megawatts of solar panels will be installed over the 240-acre site. That's enough electricity to power 12,000 homes. Ephraim Jernigan, a longtime Sunnyside resident, is part of the team that made it happen. He gave me a tour of the neighborhood on a sunny day this past May. We're going to go to the road that for the last 70 years was called Incinerator Road. But we're going to change it to Solar Boulevard. It only takes a few minutes to drive from Ephraim's childhood home to the former landfill site. Ephraim is vice president of Sunnyside Solar LLC, a company formed in partnership with the two solar energy developers working on the project. Yeah, we can get out and walk a little bit from here. There are 230 acres of trees to our right. Everything to the right is 50 megawatts of solar going to the grid. Everything to our left is what's going to be community solar, which is going to be two megawatts that's going to go to the grid, and we can sell it to the community at a discounted rate. In addition to affordable renewable energy, Ephraim is working with the city to create a range of other community benefits, including an on-site agricultural education center and a solar workforce training program. The Sunnyside Solar Project began as a C40 Reinventing Cities competition proposal. After winning the competition in 2019, the project became a centerpiece of Houston's Climate Action Plan and Mayor Turner's Complete Communities Initiative. To learn more about this, I spoke to Tomas Momier, Senior Climate Sustainability Lead in the Mayor's Office of Resilience and Sustainability. The Office of Sustainability saw an opportunity to convert the former landfill into an asset that could contribute to reducing carbon emissions, but also address a long-standing environmental injustice. The project is a key step towards Houston's goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2050, in part by generating over 5 million megawatt hours from local solar projects per year. Yet, despite international praise for the project and official rhetoric around environmental justice, some community members like Curtis Dockery feel left out of the conversation. It seemed like that solar farm project was, was developed downtown and, and without the knowledge of the community. And we still don't know a whole lot about it. While Tomas Pommier notes that the city does not manage direct communication with Sunnyside residents, he says he expects to see continued support both within the community and from other cities. We were recently at a meeting of climate mayors that have led the way in U.S. cities uh, for climate action and upholding the, the Paris Agreement. And the mayors were talking about how they do steal ideas from each other and that it's a good thing. Um, because when a good thing is done somewhere, it should be replicated elsewhere if it can have similar uh, benefits for other communities. For Climate One, I'm Aubrey Calloway. You're listening to a conversation about how cities are innovating in the face of the climate crisis. This is Climate One. Coming up, how one city is demonstrating the financial case for deconstructing and reusing building materials from vacant buildings. In, in thinking about how we assemble, in a sense, the, the financial deal for this, you have the, the two historic ways that we, we think about this is you have profit, you have revenue, and then you have avoided costs. And when we put avoided costs into this financial calculus, building deconstruction is way ahead. That's up next when Climate One continues. When buildings are abandoned or condemned, they often get demolished and dumped into landfill. But now, the U.S. Forest Service has partnered with the city of Baltimore to hire former inmates to salvage wood from vacant buildings and make it into furniture or other products. 
Research scientist and team leader for the USDA Forest Service, Morgan Grove, describes the urban wood project as creating wealth from waste. More wood goes from urban areas into landfills than is actually harvested from the U.S. national forests. And so one of the key things is for us to figure out ways to use that wood where it historically would be treated as a waste and to create wealth. And that wealth is in many forms, one of which is in the use of the wood and repurposing it for flooring, for the wood chips, the mulch, the compost, for the lesser value materials, but also for making furniture. But the creating the wealth goes beyond that. It goes to how we create jobs. Particularly, we're focused on creating jobs for people who have barriers to employment. And in doing so, we're creating opportunities for them to earn a living and then become productive in society, being able to own a house, as well as at the same time, reducing the costs of welfare that we have in order to support them when they're not able to work. That's quite a, a interesting equation there that, you know, to not dispose of wood and not to dispose of, of people and lives. I got to admit that when I hear that the U.S. Forest Service is involved in something as urban as this, it's a surprise to me. I'm used to seeing, you know, U.S. Forest Service uh, out in, you know, the rural West, et cetera. Like, you know, what's the role of the Forest Service, you know, in this uh, urban situation? Well, the definition of the chief of the Forest Service is the chief or the sort of caretaker of all forests. In a way, when we're taking care of wood that's coming out of deconstructed homes who are reaching back 100 years, in a sense. And a lot of the wood that has appeared in those homes that are now being deconstructed that have reached the end of their life cycle are in cities when they had major building booms in between 1900 and 1930. And that's when a lot of wood, old growth forests were cut down in order to build homes in urban areas. And that wood, when it was cut down, was usually somewhere between three to 400 years old. It will never exist again in the, in the history or future of the earth. And it is really beautiful, beautiful wood. So in a way, we're reaching back. And one of the goals, uh, you've talked about creating furniture with some of this uh, supply from reused wood. And I understand how that will, you know, harvesting wood from buildings means those, some tree somewhere is not getting cut down to supply that wood. And one of the goals for the project is to create an urban wood economy. So help us understand a little more other than, than furniture, what does this w urban wood economy look like? So that urban wood economy has many different forms. And, and one can think of what's the most valuable use of the wood. And, and that could be wood that's going into furniture for making chairs, making tables, um, making bases to lamps and things like that, to then making flooring and making interior siding for, for walls and so on. So you have those kinds of interior applications. Then we can use the wood also for traditional means by which to uh, create compost and, and mulch and, and those kinds of applications. And then we, we have some new opportunities. Uh, one form is what's called thermally modified wood, where we take wood that historically has not been very useful because of the way the grain turns or the way the wood decomposes. And with thermally modified wood, we basically bake it and we take all of the moisture out of the wood. And so we're creating carbon fiber and it doesn't decompose at all. And then when the other opportunity that we have is something called biochar. And biochar is basically in a way making charcoal and it is really effective for improving water quality, improving uh, as, as water filters through soils. It's important for creating and improving soil in urban areas. And it's also a way to put carbon back into the system and, and retain carbon rather than us losing car carbon into the atmosphere. But what's the economic case for using wood in those buildings? On the number side, the, the city estimates that they have in public ownership about 17,000 vacant homes. When you add the privately component of the vacant homes, we think we're around maybe 40 or 41,000. The cost of demolition 
is somewhere around $9,500. The cost for deconstruction is about $11,000. And it takes about two people to demolish a building. It takes six people to deconstruct a building. And deconstruction, we re we reuse 95, 96% of the material of, of the wood and the brick. And, you know, the, the stuff that we are unable to use is because it has lead paint in it or it has asbestos in it. And so, so those are some of your first numbers. Then, then the cost of incarceration in the state of Maryland is $37,500. The rate of recidivism in the city of Baltimore is about 48%. So you're you're hiring three more people, you're employing three more people to do things, and you're keeping people out of prison. The rate of recidivism in the building deconstruction program is somewhere around 0.2%. Then we're also able to sell all that wood and all that brick that's causing, you know, a revenue benefit that then has us if if you start to add the, all those things together, then we're way below what that cost of demolition was. And so in, in thinking about how we assemble, in a sense, the, the, the financial deal for this, you have the, the two historic ways that we, we think about this is you have profit, you just make money. You have revenue, which is you know, things that come from taxes and you know, fees and everything. Um, and then you have avoided costs. And when we put avoided costs into this financial calculus, Building deconstruction is way ahead. And that seems quite compelling to reconstruct buildings and reconstruct lives. So if this is so compelling, uh, is it scaling to other cities? Is it scaling even within Baltimore? It sounds like a pretty, the math you describe is pretty compelling. If we, if we can get our head around avoided costs, which is sometimes hard to do. It is. The, the avoided costs, it, it starts to play in now where as we look at social impact financing or environmental impact financing, it becomes part of the deal. There is a case um, for this scaling to other places. And, and we've actually been surprised when we give presentations and, you know, with the Forest Service, the, the landfill operators seem to be the most interested group of people in, in all of this and, and their motivation is, well, if you can just keep it out of my landfill, I'm all for it. You, you also have Police departments who are also very interested in this because they're sitting there going, if if you can create jobs and you can reduce the rate of crime associated with people who are those returning citizens, uh, they, they see that benefit as well. What are the lessons learned in Baltimore that other cities should pay attention to as they think about replicating this program, harvesting wood and reusing it? Well, the Forest Service has what we call urban wood academies. And, and we have people coming, and usually it's three people from a city, so that they all are gaining knowledge. And they, it's really fun. You see them talking to each other about how they could do this in Philadelphia or how they could do this in Sacramento. And train them, but it's a, it's a peer-to-peer learning. So these different cities are talking to each other and what's going to work, what isn't going to work, because we need to develop the materials, meaning like training materials, but we also need to build this, this social network of peers that we can help to transform individual cities, but also on a national level. One of the most compelling parts of this story, one that really drew us to it, is these formerly incarcerated people, this reconstructing lives and pe- keeping people at reducing recidivism. Do you know how many people uh, have been gone through this program? How many uh, people, the, the, the scale of that? And number two, can you give us an example, a personal story of someone from the program? Sure. Well, in the case of the building deconstruction that was going on in Baltimore, there were about 200 people who went through the program. And you have people who, I mean, there, there are two people who I, I became friends with, you know, frankly, friends with. And, you know, I would show up on the deconstruction site and they'd fuss at me if I didn't bring coffee, is that, you know, one individual who who admits that he, he was involved with a... a, a a robbery that re- that also resulted in in the the baker being murdered, 
and and he went to jail for that. He came out. Uh, he got involved in in the building deconstruction activities. He became a foreman for the site. He became extremely knowledgeable, not only about deconstruction, but also how to work in these neighborhoods. And and a key thing is is that we were in, we're involved in hyper local employment. Like we're really trying to hire people from these neighborhoods. And so that this one person who became a foreman, he be he was able to uh, have a secure income. And in Baltimore, we know that once you're able to a person has an income over $25,000, that's sort of the inflection point for the, where they're going to have stability in their life. And he, he had more than $25,000. He was able to get married with his girlfriend. He was able to buy his own house. He was able to uh, be able to put his daughter through college. And, you know, this was really transformative for him. Another woman who worked on it and she had been in and out of jail and she had a long history of um, drug abuse. She was grandmother and she was a foreman on the whole brick processing side of things. And, and she ran the show and, you know, she had all these guys organized in the brick processing part of things. And, and the income and the motivation to work and the sense of pride and accomplishment of work, she got cleaned up. She had a job and, and she, you know, was, it was really important for her among everything else to just be able to be present for her grandchildren and, and say to them, I, I have a job, I have a crew, I'm the boss, I'm here, I'm present. Morgan Grove is research scientist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service in Baltimore, working on the wood economy with the Urban Wood Project. Thanks, Morgan. Thanks for sharing the stories of reclaiming wood and um, personal redemption. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. On this Climate One, we've been talking about how cities are taking the lead on buildings that reduce carbon emissions and provide jobs and better quality of life. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard. We know it's difficult, awkward, sometimes depressing. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society in our lives. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on Apple. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Aaron Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basiglia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>